Hey everyone, it's Lewis Ryan back again for another exciting episode of the Visitors Might Be Listening podcast. I am here completely by myself today and... Oh, what's that? I hear a, a rapping at my chamber door. Who could it... Who could it be? Let me get the door. <laughs> nevermore, nevermore. <laughs> Why, it's Mike Levito dressed up as uh, Brandon Lee's character in The Crow. I don't know any lines from The Crow, so... And I don't know. I don't know any other lines from the Raven. So outside from well, "Once Upon a Midnight Dreary," but... pondering weak and weary. There we go. Uh, uh, remembering the lost Lenore. Um, <laughs> I'm gonna have to watch the Simpsons rendition of it to more fully remember it. Mm-hmm. But um, anyways, Mike, I'm glad you're here. I was just coincidentally recording my podcast that I do sometimes, and that you've shown up for. Uh, most every episode of recently so uh this is this is perfect timing any chance did you watch uh episodes five and six of the second season of apple tv pluses for all mankind do you know in a bizarre coincidence i did happen to watch those two episodes yesterday if you don't mind i i might just join you for this episode great well if you've got an hour to kill you've already <laughs> made the trip over to my house uh, so true. we might as well talk about it. I see you brought your microphone. I, I've already started the recording, so, you know, and it's perfect timing because I just introduced myself. So uh, now you've introduced yourself, and uh, I don't know, do you want to... I, I guess we don't have to make idle chit-chat. We can just get right into the episode discussion, if that's all right with you. Works great for me. Great, great, great. You don't have to go to the bathroom or anything? You don't want any snacks or a beer? No, I'm good. I, I just had some uh, Halloween candy we didn't give out because we didn't get that many kids. Wow, Halloween. Wasn't that weeks ago by the time <laughs> this gets posted? It'll be like two weeks ago by the time this gets posted. Mm, but I don't you, you, you don't know how, how much candy I bought and how few kids I had. I mean, I could I could be living off that for months. Let's dive right into these, these two exciting <laughs> episodes from the second season of Apple TV Plus's For All Mankind. All right, let's, let's start with episode five, which it was just titled The Wait, which we can talk about the title and why <laughs> it's called that in a second. But I guess we should deal with the fallout in a literal sense of last week's episode. So, Mike, why don't you bring us up to speed on that plot? Yeah, so uh, last episode ended with Ed Baldwin. Of course, he and Gordo were flying to, I believe it was Florida, the Cape, specifically to check out something to do with, with uh, their, their upcoming missions. And uh, they decide to have a little fun. Ed wants to cheer Gordo up, so they do this kind of like dogfight practice. Uh, but they have a little too much fun, and the engine in Ed's fighter jet goes out. He ejects and plunges deep into, I suppose it's the Caribbean. And so in this episode, we get Kelly and Karen Baldwin, like they're up in the middle of the night, very worried. And Karen has kind of like reverted back to, I feel like season one Karen, right? Like season two Karen, she's like chill, she's fun, she owns a bar now, um, she smokes weed occasionally now. Whereas, like, season one Karen's, like, very tense, constantly worried about Ed, almost kind of paranoid. And she's kind of reverted back to that role because they don't know what's happened to him yet. And then eventually they do get the phone call that he's all right. And Karen just kind of uses this opportunity as, like, another way to yell at Kelly about wanting to attend the Naval Academy being, like, this is what it's like for your loved ones. Like, this is what we experience because we're, we're not, we're not gonna, you're going to be in danger. We're not going to be able to hear from you all the time. Yeah, that is an excellent summary of the scene. I really don't have a whole lot to say about this because it's uh, fine. I mean, I understand it. 
my criticism of it, it probably stems from just splitting it over these two episodes, like mm-hmm. ending it with the plane explosion and Ed launching himself, and then it's starting this way where it's just resolving the plot. I knew going in that they're not going to kill off Ed Baldwin because obviously the real Ed Baldwin is still alive <laughs> and he didn't die like that. So there wasn't a lot of suspense there. And there were really no consequences for Ed, which I guess we'll get to in a second, but it's not like he like lost a limb or anything or he just got wet, I guess. Well, yeah, he shows um, he's got a lot of bruises on his face. And uh, Karen's, you know kind of she doesn't like yell and scream at him it's the movie equivalent of like the least amount like ed could have walked in with like his head wrapped in bandages yeah (laughs) i'm fine a neck brace perhaps yeah i didn't really get a whole lot out of this particular scene did you mike no i i mean i i think the more important well a you get kind of like i said the reversion to season one karen you know it kind of plays up this whole idea of like uh the sort of inherent selfishness of, per- of pursuing this kind of work. And you also get a rift that begins to develop between Ed and Karen. This is kind of, in some ways, well, obviously they have the big blow up in the prior episode, but, you know, th- this kind of deepens it. Ed, obviously, like we said, he's basically fine from his little excursion. Nothing bad happens to white people, as we all know. <laughs> so he's called into the NASA offices. Him and Gordo are both called in. And we've got Tom Payne and Ellen and Molly, or Margot, right? Tom Payne, Ellen, Margot, and Molly Cobb. Yes. The top brass are there. And it's like, obviously, Ed and Gordo screwed up by taking two military fighter jets out for basically a joyride and you know one of them blew up and ed could have been very seriously seriously injured so they're expecting to receive a lot of punishment but that doesn't happen does it mike no molly she yells and screams at them you know she she acts very firm but they leave and like they leave and they're kind of like two schoolboys who like you know have just gotten yelled at by the principal but like there's been no consequences so they just kind of like laugh about it later and and this you know tom is very upset by this you know because as you, i think he says like they're a million dollars a pop about about the fighter jets and it kind of you know it's it's where molly i would say establishes herself as a she she kind of tries to make her mark as a like independent member of nasa who is like solely in charge of the astronauts and and kind of separates herself from Margot and Tom. That's an interesting read. I just read it as Molly is just like, she's not going to punish Ed and Gordo because they're like her friends. Well, I mean, that too. <laughs> and like the fix is in. Yeah. <laughs> when Ed and Gordo were walking away laughing, I expected like a title card to come out to be like, Fraternity Brothers 3. <laughs> <laughs> the Revenge of Kappa Delta Phi. And it's like, you know, they're just getting into these college shenanigans. And it's like such a such a tonal whiplash is going on here ending with this harrowing explosion and then the scene with karen and kelly and then this where it's like a funny scene Mm -hmm. about the lack of punishment it's very uh very confusing but i liked uh, molly uh, because it's funny molly's like putting on airs about like being stern but it's really like she's letting them off the hook so it's funny and it requires the audience to understand that multiple things are going on yeah and more tyranny great job in the scene oh wait a minute hold on i'm getting a note here it's not more tyranny who gave you that note <laughs> what's going on <laughs> it's a good question i don't know 
is Lars somewhere in here? Is he <laughs> passing notes along? Yeah, see, I, this giant suit I'm wearing, it, it just kind of fell out of the sleeve. You know, I, I gained a lot of weight since I last saw you in person, but... Speaking of weight, that's the title <laughs> of this episode, The Weight. Uh, what does the title refer to, Mike? Literally, it refers to the band song that is played in a very memorable montage. Yeah, it's a song titled The Weight by yes. the memorably titled The Band. Mm-hmm. One of, I would argue, one of the greatest like classic rock era songs ever written it's just an incredible Do you have a fondness for the band i the band you know they're they're kind of like a, a the band are a band that that everybody like people like you know people who consider themselves like serious music people really like i enjoy their music you know i've never i don't have like a particular connection to them like i i kind of like a lot of bands from their era just because you know i'm as young as i am like i connect with them over like the, the songs of theirs that are played on classic rock radio so like the weight uh the shape i'm in the night they drove old dixie down but and they really only have like i would argue like two albums you have to pay attention to and for a while i think they only had two albums period but uh the the last waltz of course the documentary about the band's last performance um directed by martin scorsese arguably the greatest concert documentary of all time absolute incredible performances throughout it Acadian Driftwood, which is actually like a bonus track on that. It's not. I don't think it's. I don't think it's in the original film. Like an incredible, heartbreaking song, especially sung by all these Canadian guys because it's about like Canadian. What's the word I'm looking for? Canadian like um, Mounties. No exiles, like all like the French Canadians who were exiled from Canada after the French and Indian War to, to Louisiana. Great band, and uh, like I said, good use of this song. We get. Should I describe the, the montage, or is that getting ahead of ourselves? Yes, that's getting ahead of ourselves. Okay. <laughs> First, I wanted to discuss how this season ends. No, but so the, this, the weight is referring to, the title I think is referring basically to um, Tracy and Gordo's plot in this yeah. episode. Mm-hmm. So um, Tracy has launched herself back into space to achieve even more heights. She's already achieved heights in fame and popularity. She wants to achieve more heights by actually going to the moon is this her first time on the moon i believe so yes she never went back up into space after rescuing molly cobb as far as we know wow what a fraud (laughs) tracy lands on the moon there's a funny opening scene where uh like the shuttle lands and tracy walks out and it's like admiring all the wonder and splendor and then it's like comedy reveal of like a guy holding a camera like oh i think the camera's broken (laughs) yeah you're gonna have to do it again and it's like it just shows that you know tracy is a a fraud and and she arrives at the base she's declared the linus of the base because she is the the newest person to the base they just get like a a linus like from peanuts velcro badge attached to them I like how they kept saying from peanuts. Yes. Yeah. Because people were, were kept getting confused. And um, I mean, talk about the weight. I mean, she like literally her job is to haul cargo in, in the uh, I, the lamb, I guess that's called, you know, kind of like the, the lander thing. And so that's her job. And, you know, it, there there's this kind of immediately this sort of clash between like the fact that she's up there partly. Well, she's up there to do like her actual job. Right. And then but she is a celebrity. And so. You know, people are kind of in awe of her. She has these cameras following her around. She's doing segments for The Tonight Show from the moon. Um, 
our first guest from the moon. <laughs> that sounded more like Nixon than Carson, I gotta be honest yeah. with you. Yeah, all right, Mike. <laughs> all not, right. not that I could do much better. <clears throat> Wild stuff. Not, see, I tried it and I can't do it. Um, Weird, wacky stuff from the moon. Yeah, see, that's better. Yeah, so I, I, at first I thought this episode was going to be like a kind of like a mockumentary episode. Mm. Following the camera, following Tracy mm-hmm. through the base. And I thought, oh, this would be like an interesting departure if the show did like an office style episode mm-hmm. where, you know, Tracy like begins to break down a la like a David Brent or Michael Scott or something. <laughs> right. did, did you expect that? Because like at the beginning, it's like she's introduced to everybody and it's like Tracy has like a kind of a painted on smile. Mm-hmm. And it's like following and then the, she's introduced to the, the guy who was like formerly the Linus mm-hmm. who like gives her the tour. And he like attempts to like make jokes, and it's like kind of like a uh, Michael Scottish kind of performance where it's like, "Oh, follow me, my lady, yeah. for the tour." <laughs> and I was just like waiting at point for Tracy to just like take him aside and be like, "Now listen here, you little shit." <laughs> like I was expecting that to happen. Were you expecting that? Uh, I I had not really thought that far into it, I guess. But that that would be an interesting approach. But you do like the yeah the the cringe. The cringe factor with, I believe his name is Corrado, and Tracy uh, is is very high. It, she She's truly a fish out of water, which makes sense because she is literally a human on the moon. But even among the environment of, of the base, like there is, it's clear that she, she does not entirely fit in and she's not in Kansas anymore. Yeah, well, she's like doing a lot of radio spots mm-hmm. and tv interviews and it's honestly like how many times can johnny carson have you on the on the on the show i mean i guess they must be like doing a moon week yeah thing where the she's on every day of the week or something to check in but it's honestly like come on yeah it's not like she has an interesting job either she just kind of flies from point a to point b she's a truck driver as she well, says like she's a spokesperson oh yeah it's like too. the equivalent of like the weatherman mm-hmm. in the uh, hurricane and yeah. we all tune in to watch them in, you know, their waders and knee-high boots. Yeah. And, you know, for a flying fish to fly up and slap them in the face. Exactly, yeah. Tracy finds herself kind of, she's got more than she bargained for when it comes to her job on the moon, right? Yeah, she she's, it, and it's really less her job than it is sort of like just the, the day-to-day life of living on the moon, right? It's not as glamorous as her life was on earth where she lives in a big mansion and you know, she's eating like this terrible microwave breakfast and sleeping in a cot, a cot that has an air vent in it. That's very loud. I guess there's no running water. Like she just kind of washes her hands with this, this gross looking soap. She can't smoke either. So she's kind of has like a pack of empty cigarettes being like, Oh, I'll, I'll just pretend to smoke and and that'll help me. And um, she's just kind of drinking, uh, the moonshine that like the chemists on the base make. Tracy is having a tough time, and it's paralleled with her ex-husband, Mr. Gordo Stevens, right, Mike? It is, yes, of course. Uh, when we last saw Gordo in the previous episode, he was, you know, having some flashbacks to his last time on the moon, which did not go well, of course. He's kind of seeing things. He get, He's having these panic attacks, basically. Very mild panic attacks, but panic attacks nonetheless when he puts on a helmet. And uh, so he's he's whipping himself into shape. He, he's getting rid of all the booze in the house. Um, he, he's working out. He's doing push-ups, sit-ups, running around. Um, he's locking himself in 
a closet with his helmet on to like simulate like i thought i thought that was actually a very funny scene jimmy opens up the closet and gordo's just there like with the helmet on sitting in the closet because he has like the he's got like a tube running from the closet into the hallway or whatever and he's just like you okay he's like yeah i'm fine this is all just part of training he's like okay it's a little disturbing yeah it me, is anyway it is like imagine uh, walking in on your father like that yeah no that that'd be pretty messed up i don't want that and then tracy is also coping she does actually find a way to smoke eventually she goes into like the airlock i guess and just kind of blows us out the ventilator wouldn't it have been funny though if like she she lights up a cigarette like she like lights the lighter and then the base just explodes i mean that's kind of what i was expecting I, I know it was literally not going to happen because then you just don't really have a show but like i feel like i thought i kind of thought that's what was gonna happen i was like no don't like that but no, it, it works out at least temporarily yeah she she like uses a vacuum cleaner to suck up all the smoke and uh send it out into the air one thing i had a question about though is that would tracy not smell that's a good point i i guess she would because like that's the thing like i know about now it's like you know when you watch movies and tv it like cigarettes like look smoking like looks cool mm-hmm. but then you like meet people that smoke and they like smell terrible <laughs> so like that's why i would never want to meet like john mulaney <laughs> he probably smells terrible <laughs> That... And I have to imagine that Tracy would smell awful too. Like it would be noticeable on the moon. That's a good point. Um, I don't know. Maybe it, you know, it was the 80s. Maybe just everybody kind of smelled like smoke. Probably still smoke on airplanes then. Certainly, you could certainly still smoke in bars. So maybe it was just like, a, I don't know. Maybe it was just it was just kind of baked in, I guess. And if you're a smoker, you just kind of assume you smell that way anyway. True. I'd, yeah, I'd have to imagine it would be more noticeable though. Yeah, because I'm assuming everyone else is not smoking. Yes, I would agree. I'm 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 just coming with rationalizations. I I really have no insight into this. Yeah, I was expecting like Tracy in the airlock to get like a knock on the door and for John Mulaney to be like, "Hey, you guys smoking <laughs> cigarettes in here?" That that'd be a fun little cameo. But alas, he he does not show up. We've got uh the the Space Marines. Um. Molly. Oh, right, right, right. Is that the scene with Molly? It is, yes. The Space Marines are kind of inspecting their weapons, you know, talking about how they don't have rules of engagement, but then Molly comes with rules of engagement, and she goes to read them aloud, and all of a sudden, her vision is, is, is not working, everything's blurry, and she kind of summarizes, like, you know, don't shoot unless you're attacked, or there's some hostile act or whatever, and yeah, so it's, it's a sign that, uh, molly who you'll remember was exposed to potentially lethal amounts of radiation um all is not well with her something about this scene was funny i think it's like the set because it kind of looks like they shot it just like in an empty room like really quickly like they just set up the lights and then molly just walks in it reminded me of like an snl like a filmed snl bit where molly just shows up <laughs> yeah she's got this binder i've got the rules of engagement here everybody mm-hmm. and it's kind of it's kind of funny how it's like they she's like trying to read but she can't right she's got cancer in her eyes but um so she's like eh you read this on your own time you big palookas but uh yeah they're sending up uh space marines up to the moon for the first time and it's like rah rah yahoo oorah as they say in the core so yeah, we, we've got all that to look forward to we also have like some brief alata stuff oh yeah i wanted to talk about this let me let me read you because i have the wikipedia summary Mm -hmm. open where here here's the the plot summarized on wikipedia 
Aleda is given a condescending welcome to NASA as a rookie engineer on the Apollo Soyuz project. Do you really think it's like a condescending welcome? Yeah, that, that's not really how I read it. It was it was a gruff welcome, right? It wasn't like the most pleasant thing in the world. She she gets her assignment and Bill Strausser... No, actually, it's not condescending at all at first. Because Bill Strausser is like trying to make conversation with her. And she's like trying to conceal her background. So she doesn't say anything. And he's like, okay, I guess we'll get to work then. And is this the same episode where he... No, it's not. In the next episode, things get a little tense between them. Um, no, no, that that isn't continued until I think next week's episodes. Well, there is. I mean, there is like he. I think in the next episode, and, and this is like not a major spoiler, but it's like when they're trying to figure out how to connect the two capsules. It's like she makes suggestions, and he's like, "You are on operations. You are not on design." design. I wouldn't call that again condescending. I think he's just being stern. But yeah, condescending is not the word I would use. Yeah, but it's like entirely self-inflicted condescension, if anything, because Elena just absolutely refuses to engage with him at all. Yeah. Where it's like, oh, hey, hi, Elena, how are you? I'm uh, Bill. Yeah. <laughs> I'm Bill. Yep. How are you? And she's like, no. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> well, okay. Yeah. She, she gives him absolutely nothing to work with. Exactly, yeah. It takes two to tango. Yeah, so uh, did you have anything else you wanted to say about it? About Aleda? Yeah, about the Aleda plot. You brought it up. No, not really. <laughs> I mean, like, not, character. not that much else happens with it. I mean, she just kind of shows up and I'm like, all right, this is what you're going to do. And she's super excited about it. She's very excited. Despite all the rigmarole she goes through in the prior episode about how she doesn't want to take Margaret's charity and blah, blah, blah. She is, like, living her best life as an engineer for NASA. Yeah, and I think it's clear that the writers are intentionally wanting you to not like Aleda, I think. Because, like, we talked about how she's, like, kind of, like, introduced in this season. It's like a Dr. House type, mm-hmm. where it's like, I'm a jerk, darn it, but I have a degree in physics. So she you gets results. Get <laughs> no one else can. There are probably millions of other people that major in physics and are nice, but not me, darn it. Mm-hmm. Where it's like, you know, I was kind of like, eh, I don't know if I want to watch a season of Aleda being like a jerk who like undeservedly gets this job and just acts like a jerk to everybody. Mm-hmm. But I think the writers are intentionally knowing she's a jerk and re- making it seem like, yeah, she doesn't have to, they don't have to put up with her BS if they don't want to. All right. I'm going to do it, Mike. I'm going to bring it up. Ellen visits Pam. She does a poetry reading. She's giving a reading at a bookstore. They, uh, they talk. I she- like how Ellen talks about, Ellen's like, they're talking about it. It's like, oh, it's kind of surprising you became a poet. And then Ellen's like, well, not really. I mean, you were always kind of like a deep thinker. And I'm just like yelling at the TV. <laughs> yeah, it is. They, they don't really like foreshadow this development at all. Like it did. It did make me uh, realize how thin of a character Pam is in the first season. She's really just there to be Ellen's love interest and, and kind of create that conflict for Ellen. And I don't know that she gets like, much deeper in this like she is just kind of you know uh there to create conflict for ellen really of course part of the big conflict is that pam is seeing somebody named elise um pam is open and living in uh the hippie paradise that is austin texas so uh very different from the buttoned up government influenced uh, culture of houston to say the least is that true about austin it's very very liberal yeah 
back then? I I I don't I, I actually have no idea if it was still that like that back then or was like that back then. But like you know, it's where the University of Texas is. Keep Austin weird. That's like the big slogan. Um, it it's known for its uh, bohemian culture. Perhaps not like to the extent that like Eugene, Oregon, or like Burlington, Vermont is. But you know, it's still it's still uh, like I said, very uh, progressive. Once again, like this continuing plot line, like continues to baffle me. Mm-hmm. just because it's like okay so we introduced pam again and now she's a genius superstar poet if that that's a thing that exists and then they they reconnect ellen talks about how pam is like the only one because like they have this unbelievable connection mm-hmm. that just doesn't come across to me at least for whatever reason and then to complicate matters they introduce this character elise right yeah whose Pam is currently in a relationship with. So it's like, okay. So then they meet up later in this episode, right? Mm-hmm. They're like standing outside and you know they're like off, just off the sidewalk, like near the bushes. Yeah. <laughs> and they're like trying to avoid being seen. Because mm-hmm. Ellen is too much of a recognizable figure. Well, yeah, isn't that the next episode though? Um do you want to just get it out of the way? It doesn't really impact a lot, does it? Well, so they, they end up sleeping together. Like, they have a drink and they end up sleeping together. And then in the next episode... Yeah, yeah, yeah. So they, they end up meeting at the outpost. And then they're like, oh, it's great to see you. Yep, now we will never see each other again. Mm-hmm. Have fun with your lives. And then they end up having sex. Yeah. Um... It's like, great, Pam, you, you cheated on your your partner yes and um yeah i i don't know what to to make of this yeah well and then should we talk about like the conversation she has with larry when we talk about the next episode then yeah 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 okay cool like i don't understand like this is like literally like what we talked about like the show becoming mad men right a little bit yeah it's like i don't know at the same thing time it's like i i appreciate the sort of i find like ellen's storyline more interesting than pam's storyline if that makes sense like i think the conflict ellen is like having like i think that makes sense to explore and i appreciate that element of it right the problem is is that pam is like a very poor foil because as we've been talking about like she's just a very thinly drawn character like the idea of her being like a deep thinker is something we're literally introduced to the first time in this episode and it's one of those things where it's like, well, I don't really get what Ellen sees in Pam in a weird way, right? It's like, I feel like to have this work, like, truly work, you kind of, as, like, a story point. It's like, you have to, like, feel something. Like, you have to be, like, upset that they're separated, I think, just beyond kind of, like, the baseline. Like, oh, this is an injustice that's going on because of, you know, prejudice. The prejudice of the time, right? You have to feel like there's some connection there, and you don't. You're told there's a connection there, but I feel like you don't really feel it right this is not don draper and rachel minkin right this is not don draper and linda cardellini's character you know this isn't even george and susan on seinfeld <laughs> right yeah i don't feel anything <laughs> yeah and maybe it's unfair to compare don draper to because like those are i don't think he's supposed to be in like love with those people per se actors could have just you know natural chemistry you know if mm-hmm. even if the script doesn't call for them to be in love i'm just not buying it these people act like aliens <laughs> Fair enough. 
from another universe, which is what they are, essentially. <laughs> what else is there to talk about? I guess the resolution with Tracy in this episode. Yeah, so Tracy, there's a like an alarm goes off while she's trying to go to sleep. It turns out that uh, they think there's like an uh, there's there's too much CO two in the base, and so you know that that could mean they have to evacuate. Turns out what happened is is that Tracy's blocked vent was causing like you know the sensors to pick up on a spike in CO two when there really was no uh, danger to anybody. And so she gets kind of scolded by uh, Commander Rossi, who's the commander of Jamestown. And he's like, you know, it's been a month, you know, your mission, you've been here for a month, and you're not really, things aren't going super smoothly. And he, 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 I like how he starts to go into like a lecture where he's like, you just have to learn how to embrace. And then he just goes, have you been drinking? Because he starts, I guess, smells the alcohol on her breath. And she is drunk, it turns out. And he threatens to write her up. And she says, please, no, don't, they'll ground me. And uh, that becomes the whole thing. Yep, Tracy gets what she deserves. <laughs> a good talking to. Yeah, she gets assigned an extra shift, and that means she now has to, they call it hot racking, she has to share a bed with somebody. Like, you know, she works the night shift, they work the day shift, they have to share the bed. And I think it's interesting to point out that they have numerous shots where she, Tracy looks at a photo of Danielle mm -hmm. from back in the day where it's like she had her broken arm and it's like, don't let this happen to you. Yes. It's like the note that's literally written on it. Gordo is, of course, in the picture as well. But I think it's obviously like Tracy doesn't want to end up like that, right? Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and she also takes to talking to Deke's grave. Oh, yeah. Right. Which I guess they did have a relationship in that one episode <laughs> in episode th three or whatever yeah and they never spoke again <laughs> nixon's women won the high points which we always say yeah but i mean like it wasn't no, it, yeah. it was never really followed up on and so it's introduced here again and it's kind of like eh i'm not buying it I'm not buying a tv show yeah no that's that's totally fair uh i guess the last thing is to talk about the ending of this episode where it's karen talking with danny stevens mike right yeah they they have this moment i guess it's like at closing of the bar and danny's just there's kind of reminiscing and danny's like oh i remember this night when we were i was having a sleepover at your house and um you know we were being loud and ed was really upset and you came in and you yelled at us to to, to for to like put up an act but then you were just like hey you don't have to go to bed just like keep it down and he also talks about one time he went to their house kind of earlier than he was expecting to and he saw her dancing to elvis and then he talks about how shane's death is like a dividing moment in his life and they share this you know emotionally resonant moment and then they part their ways and karen goes home and puts on don't be cruel and dances to it oh really is that the name of the song yeah oh i saw that was the name of an episode later on oh this season she she dances we just told on her dancing in a big empty room which the whole time i was thinking about how she's dancing like nobody's watching but in reality she was probably dancing in like front of 50 <laughs> schlubby electricians and grips or whatever that, um that's a good point which does take some bravery i admit that is probably not something i could do as an actor is dance like that and pretend like nobody is watching <laughs> Well, no, I do it sometimes if I'm very much alone. But even then, there's always the thought that someone might be watching you secretly. So, yeah, it's uh, I'll, I'll give her credit there. Yeah, well, the cameras the government puts in our heads. Oh, yes, true. And another offbeat ending for the show. I'm, like, at odds with the show 
because like i would just want to see like the space action <laughs> in the alternate history but they keep shoving in like this this stuff that mm-hmm. i don't know if i actually care about <laughs> i th- that's a fair point the whole shane thing is, is like harped on a lot and becomes like kind of a almost like the the creation myth of like all this conflict between karen and ed i mean yeah that's fair it, it, it is a weird way to end it i don't know it's a good song what can i say If you're a fan of the Post Riders articles, podcasts, and projects, be sure to sign up for our newsletter. It's a once-a-week digest of everything we've worked on, what the site is up to, and other things we'd recommend each Monday. We don't believe in subjecting you to daily, annoying emails, but we do believe in keeping our most passionate and loyal supporters in the loop on what we've been up to. We know how inconvenient and annoying it is to have your inbox flooded with constant reminders and useless material. That's why we run a curated weekly newsletter that gives you a once-a-week scoop. New subscribers help us know how many people are reading and listening to our work and want to hear more from us. So go to thepostwriter.com newsletter to sign up now. Let's dive into episode six, which yes. is called Best Laid Plans. Of Mice and Men. That's another poem. Yeah, so Best Laid Plans, we begin uh, with hearing a brass band rendition, speaking of music, of the Soviet National Anthem because the uh, the Soyuz part of the Apollo-Soyuz mission touches down in Houston to collaborate with their American counterparts. Uh, they're given this sort of like very warm welcome by the Americans, at least as warm as you could possibly make that welcome at during the Cold War. And they have this uh, very kind of like awkward meeting about uh, the mission beforehand where, you know, they refer to the people involved in the mission as astronauts one, two, three, and four. And the Soviets are like, no, it should be astronauts one and two and then cosmonauts one and two. And instead of calling it Apollo Soyuz, it should be called Soyuz Apollo. And it's this all kind of back and forth. It gets to a point where basically it's like, you know, the, the Russians aren't going to share their, like, encryption protocol mm-hmm. to properly communicate. And the implications that, like, hey, this is probably, like, not going to work out. Do you think the writers of the show spent all day coming up with this scene? Where it's like, what if what if they object to it being called Apollo Soyuz? And then they suggest <laughs> it should be Soyuz Apollo. Oh, my God, you're onto something here, Dan. Write, write this down. It, it is very, like, uh, I mean, like, what, what I appreciate, it's, it's not just the stories, of, it's, like, also the talk about, like, what the, like, act, which active end of, like, which cast will be doing. So it's, like, kind of, like, a weird pissing contest, basically, right? Like, there's, there's a weird kind of, like, psychosexual, like, you know, mine is bigger than yours type thing going on that I, I thought was mine well enough. They The writers just want to send the message that geopolitics is actually incredibly silly. And we all <laughs> we all just need to, you know, trust each other and get along. And that, that, that would have solved everything. The Cold War wouldn't have happened, darn it, if we just put aside our egos and just hugged each other in a yeah. big bonfire of peace. If we just bought the world a Coke, <laughs> then... And I did want to bring up, because you brought up the brass band... I would be remiss in not bringing this up for long-time listeners of the Visitors podcast. In V, the original miniseries, when the uh, the Visitors land their ship in uh, Los Angeles, there's like a, a brass band from like a high school. They have the high school marching band like playing um, the Star Wars music from mm-hmm. Star Wars by John Williams. 
And it just it reminded me of that, just the uh, idea of having like this little band for the Russians. It makes more sense because it's just like two random cosmonauts. But in V, it's like the first landing of like aliens from another planet. And they just got 30 piece marching band from the high school to show up. Uh, it's just, it's very silly. But yeah, we're introduced to these uh, two cosmonaut characters. And it's uh, very interesting watching them square off against Danny. Yes, Danny, who's of course the commander of the Apollo Danielle, side. not Dan- Danny Stevens. Yes, Danielle Poole, the, the Apollo side of the now Soyuz Apollo mission. And there, uh, you know, I found the contrast interesting, right? It's like you have these, like they have that one, there's the one scene where, um, you know, she's like, oh, like, why, why, why are you guys like in the Soviet space program? And she tells the story about how her father was a cargo pilot who taught her how to fly. And then, uh, you know, the, the, uh, the space program opened up to women and she's like, oh, I just had to apply. And the Russians are just like, yeah, like I was in the Soviet Air Force and then my commander recommended me for astronaut training and so I went. Yeah, it is what Wikipedia would call a condescending welcome. <laughs> yes, I suppose so. Because they're being brusque. Yes. And uh, they, they, in an effort to be welcoming the Americans, buy them Russian food from a restaurant in Houston. Like, can't imagine, like, the best Russian food you're going to find will be in Houston. I mean, obviously the best would probably be in Russia, but as far as, like, American cities, like Houston, like... You probably go to like Coney Island or Brighton Beach or Miami for that, but Brighton Beach, okay, not being stereotypical. I, I'm just this is where Russians live. I'm just saying. I would assume there's good Russian food there. <laughs> they, they, they drink, they eat borscht, and they play with the Petrushka dolls. <laughs> I don't know. And they man. talk about the the czar and his daughter Anastasia. But yeah, no, they again. It's probably like I don't know how long the writers probably spent on this. Where it's like, here we brought you this tray of borscht from the local restaurant restaurant in town, and they're like, we were hoping we could have hamburger <laughs> yes the I, best pronunciation of hamburger since <laughs> steve martin's the pink panther in 2006 i was gonna say and yet not used in a brilliant comic set piece involving airport security and then when they get to the bar it's like karen's like oh do you guys want a vodka and he's like do you have jack daniels and she's <laughs> like yeah and then they just have like the whole bottle of jack daniels basically it would have been funny if there was a scene of like them explaining why they're there like Danny's like, so we thought we'd go try the best hamburgers in town, and Karen's like, oh, and it's like, but that place was closed, so we came here to the outpost <laughs> yeah. instead. And then the Russians try to order hamburgers. It's like, I'm sorry, we only have spaghetti with the sauce <laughs> right on the top. It's like this is not hamburger. <laughs> what do you know? You've never had one before. They just make them eat it. <laughs> um, and it's like the, re- then, the rest of the running joke throughout the rest of the series is them being like oh let's go get hamburger and they go to like an italian restaurant <laughs> they're like floating in space and you just see like the hamburger and like the half open mcdonald's wrapper <laughs> just like floating around it's like where is uh my mcflurry so they they have this scene where they get their jack daniels and they decide to do a toast and they russians offer up the idea of doing a customary russian toast where they salute fallen comrades and women and then it gets very tense because they bring up their fallen comrades in the space program and the russians are like you know people on apollo one wouldn't have died if you had you know more carbon dioxide or whatever like we do and then danny like obviously is like takes this as an insult Mm -hmm. yeah and she's like well if your cosmonauts wore pressure suits on re-entry like ours do then maybe uh they would have lived and it becomes this kind of back and forth between it doesn't get as tense as the last the scene with uh, Danielle Clayton and Gordo. Yeah. 
which just goes on. They manage to. They have the one guy there, the other guy who's not Danielle, whose uh, name is uh, Joe Bob Smith, <laughs> and he's like, "Hey guys, let's let's calm down, and have more drinks." Yeah. And we also have a guy at the bar who's constantly looking over at their table. Yeah, you have the man in the members only jacket. Yeah. Watching them. <laughs> Mm-hmm. And um, the camera keeps focusing on him. So I think he is the one who kills Danielle Poole in the oh, last episode. That, that's, that's a really interesting theory. I hadn't thought of that. I didn't notice him the first time I watched, so I think you may be onto something there. <laughs> no, but, but seriously, folks, uh, our Sopranos finale references aside, I, I, when I first watched this episode, I thought it was going to be like some businessman who's at the outpost, like an American type would walk over and like a text text we don't want no <laughs> russians here this is america gosh dang it we'll go to good old boys that's what i thought because he doesn't look obviously it's like he's supposed to be like a russian body man yeah but uh, i thought it was just gonna be american business type who's at the outpost because he can't find a better place to eat right they uh I, in the real history note like all all the people they talk about who died like are people who actually died in um soviet and american space and both of these russian cosmonauts are fictional oh i actually have no idea i assume so i i was looking up uh some of the soviet space program and i found a picture of someone who looked like the guy with the mustache so i was wondering if like maybe these guys were real real cosmonaut uh no they were not fictional fictional guys yeah so I guess we'll just talk about the, 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 the rest of this sequence where the, the, the lead Russian cosmonaut talks with Danielle about Laika, who, for those of you who don't know, Laika was the first dog in space, the first sentient being launched into outer space against her will. It was you know a big deal back in the day, the space race, trying to do everything first, as we talked about last a season with our last batch of episodes yeah so they talk about Leica. yeah and um you know the 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 cosmonaut says like he held Leica before she like on the launching pad before she went up and danielle tries to put this like positive spin on it's like well she sacrificed herself you know for the world for scientific advancement and he's like nah she just died like she just straight up like died and she, he actually says like she's like oh you know she went around the earth like seven times and then you know she she peacefully passed away and he's like no actually like there was a malfunction and it only went across like three and a half times and she died like in like fear and pain which is actually what happened and it but but that wasn't known until 2002 like the russians had like covered up what happened to like a like in actuality until you know well after uh, the space race was over russian propaganda yes and uh yeah danny has this inspiring speech about you know Laika was chosen from hundreds of dogs that were trained and you know she was selected to be the one she, she was the first let's give her some credit let's give her some agency and while it's a like again it's a very well written and well executed scene to me this read like the uh prestige drama equivalent of like glurge because it's like there weren't like hundreds of dogs trained you know to go up into this space flight yeah. it was just like they found some stray dogs mm-hmm. and then they trained a couple and then Leica was ultimately the one selected so it wasn't like you know they were training dogs to do the complicated things that human astronauts do they were just sitting in a pod and the, whatever dog was ultimately going to die anyway obviously it didn't Leica didn't die the way they had intended, but it was always meant to be a spacecraft shuttle that launched up into space and never 
ever returned. Um, so so that that's how I read. It was like the most kind of the most cliche, sad prestige drama TV scene um, that that you know I, I ultimately liked, even though I'm criticizing it. Yeah, I kind of agree because yeah, I, I agree that uh, yeah, it, it's not like she was you know the Neil Armstrong of dogs. Uh, she was. I uh, just kind of was in the wrong place at the wrong. She's actually a stray. They just like found her on the street. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, they they well they wanted strays because well according to Wikipedia, they wanted uh, dogs that were used to the cold harsh conditions of the streets of Moscow. <laughs> there you go. Um, and plus, you why would you send like it's not like you're gonna send up the president's dog like <laughs> why are you gonna send up a dog people care about? <laughs> <laughs> bon voyage checkers. Um, yeah, <laughs> that, that's obviously a good point. Yeah, it, it's, it, I, I don't know that I fully understand that speech or that moment, but it's, like you said, it's well acted and it's well written, even though I didn't really get it. Well, it's, yeah, it's just like someone was like looking up space facts on Wikipedia and yeah. it was like, Leica, huh? Well, I, I can I, twist and turn this into drama. I feel, and I feel like the bigger point is that like, it, it also just kind of like, further illustrates the divide between the American and the Soviet mindset where the Americans are like, well, we were, we're, we're making progress. We're doing great things. You know, we, we, we are choosing to do this. And the Soviets are like, we are being forced to do this. Like this is something that our government is telling us to do. And we do not have a choice. One thing about um, people uh, when, like when you're writing fiction is that they're like really sensitive about like animals and like animal mm-hmm. cruelty yeah. so like this scene is definitely meant to like tug at those heartstrings where it's like me it's like i mean it's all fictional so like to me it's like kill as many dogs as you want <laughs> you know i was like thinking today about like because like sometimes i think about like what if breaking bad was like a 22 episode season tv show mm-hmm. and like I, I came up today with like a, a thought about like if they really wanted the audience to like turn on walter white like really quickly there would have been a scene where like uh like a da dog they're like hey walt uh hank's like hey walt i borrowed this dog for the day <laughs> like the dog starts like sniffing around and walt's like oh oh <laughs> you know that open mouth thing that he yeah. does like yeah and then like walt has to like ultimately kill the dog mm-hmm. that that would have like turned the audience <laughs> completely off walter white <laughs> it uh it definitely would have i mean that's i like... killed scruffy that's like uh, the great thing about uh, Tony Soprano, right? Like he he loves animals. He loved Pyomai. Yeah, well that that's what keeps you from like hating his character. Yeah, these um, writing tricks, writing shorthands that um he 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 loves animals. So people are like, he can't be a sociopath, you know, because he loves animals. I I like watching him every week on my TV. I mean, he treats his son like garbage, but <laughs> kind of deserves it, right? Yeah. But yeah, that, 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 that's one thing I wanted to bring up. Uh, let, let's talk about this this Margot plotline. I was thinking how Margot hasn't really had a whole lot going on in the first half of this season. Yeah, she hasn't. So she obviously is, is kind of like uh, really struggling with what to do about this this project that seems doomed to fail. And she's she has now like a, uh, a counterpart in the form of a guy named sergey nikolov you know who, he's just like the russian margot basically and he he she goes to visit him in his office which is guarded by i assume a kgb agent or you know some other soviet agency or military outfit and he's listening to this like very kind of depressing like i guess it's like russian opera or something i don't really know and she's like hey like i'm trying to come up with ways to figure this whole thing out and he's like yelling at her like no this is all just a an American plot to humiliate the motherland and blah, 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 blah. And clearly doing it to like put on a show for the guard. And they start sort of, and so Margot writes 
And note that says 11.59 at 11.59. And you're like, wait, what? And then Sergey shows up at the 11.59 club so that we can see our other favorite subplot, Margot's Jazz Career. <laughs> uh, yeah, so I guess that well. was the name of the club yeah. that she oh. was performing at? I, 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 the, the um, impression I got was that like this was its like new name, that it wasn't called that in the first season. Because um, it seems like like the outpost, it's become like sort of like gimmicky. Because you know they have like the, the like radiation sign. Yeah, it seems like a very hip place, inspired by the Doomsday Clock. Yes. Should we explain the Doomsday Clock? So it's it's a cl- it's an actual clock. No, the Doomsday Clock is just like it's it... a clock created by the uh, Bulletin of Atomic Scientists, which mm-hmm. is published in uh, January. Well, it's actually you'll see the clock in every cover of their magazine. But uh, every January, they get together and decide whether the Doomsday Clock should move forward or backward towards midnight. Midnight being, like, I, I guess, Armageddon. Yeah, yeah. Basically. So, obviously, that was a big uh, thing in the 80s when they were doing the uh, tete-a-tete between Ronald Reagan and his, the, the evil empire of the Soviets, where it seemed like it was uh, inevitable that there would be conflict. Of course, that didn't end up happening. And by the time Mike and I were born, the clock was 17 minutes away from midnight, and it has gone dwindling ever closer to midnight ever <laughs> since and it currently is 100 seconds to midnight so uh we'll see maybe this january they'll move the clock backwards which this which would be good or hopefully not closer well given the way things are going in uh russia and ukraine my guess is they probably won't but yeah it's a little like controversial because you know it is a some people think it's a bit of a publicity stunt you know there, there's no like scientific basis to the clock it's it's just their kind of assessment of the situation yeah other than the fact that they are atomic scientists well yes but it's like they're um it's not like i don't know like i don't know how you could actually scientifically measure well this. It's, yeah it's not objective like they could say we are at midnight and <laughs> yeah it's just like biden's I'm... gonna start letting nukes fly it's actually it's like like the Russians launch the nukes, and it's like the, they have like one guy who's just like ready to run to the clock to set it to midnight. It's like he just sits in a room all day, like waiting. Got to send chance. out this newsletter. Yeah, <laughs> got to publish the next issue. Yeah, so Sergey and Margot meet. Margot plays the piano. She still got it after all these years. Yep. And they meet for drinks. Guy managed to shake his kgb bodyguard and they have drinks and they talk is there anything in particular they talk about well they they, they she, she's like you know i don't want people to know about this music and blah 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 basically the 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 most important part is that they come up with a way to make the capsules merge yeah. without there being any sort of like penetrative metaphor um they're looking at the coasters yes which are kind of already designed in like this sort of trapezoidal shape mm-hmm. and the guy starts playing with the cardboard coaster, which I have done many times to not as a degree of successful ingenuity, <laughs> but he manages to figure out a way to, to sort of couple both the shuttles so that they both have, they're kind of both male and female presenting. Totally androgynous capsules. Yes, that's that's what they say. <laughs> and they rush back in excitement to, to JSE and they see in like the model capsule a pair of feet hanging out of them. It turns out they belong to Aleda, who is also there, even though she's on operations and not design, she is there also trying to figure out, and they, they put their three heads together and figure out a way to make this work. Yeah, well, there's a couple things about this scene I want to talk about. One, the, the napkins at the 1159 Club. 
They must be like cloth or something because they come in with like these super detailed drawings written on the napkins. Whereas like if I've ever written something on a napkin, it's like, it's like impossible to write anything super complicated on a napkin. Yeah. Big too. Like seems seemingly bigger than normal napkin and like very intricate drawings as well. Like really detailed sketches. Yeah. No ink blotches. Mm -hmm. No smudging. No ink on their side of their hands. (laughs) No. And then the uh, the other thing is Aleda. It seemed to me like Aleda was like sleeping or whatever because like she didn't react at all to like Margot and Sergey coming in. So mm-hmm. at first I was like, is she sleeping or is like is she smoking pot in there? Because she's like <laughs> just lying in this thing. And then she's like, oh, I thought I'd just like get inside for inspiration. And it's like, okay, that seems weird. <laughs> you were just like lying down in there. And then Sergey's like, I like her. I like this ingenuity. Yes. <laughs> and it's like, she wasn't doing anything. <laughs> no. But it, but he says like, I am drunk. Yeah, that's, uh, yeah. I don't know. It's a weird scene. I mean, kind of. It, it's exciting, but also, yeah, they, they're, they're still trying to figure out how properly to uh, integrate Aleda into the rest of the story, it seems it, like. It's not like it's a bad. It's 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 interesting, but it is like kind of like by the numbers. Yeah. Where it's like things happen, and it's like if you think about it too much, then you'll you'll realize it's kind of... Um, there may be flaw, inherent flaws in this. Not, uh, not exactly airtight, but entertaining nonetheless. But what is airtight is their proposal for the androgynous connections where they the one thing Aleda suggests is like you need a, like a hula hoop yeah to act as a shock absorber basically and so they have a meeting again between the two sides and uh everybody seems pleased and they end up sharing their sharing Radio frequency yes. or whatever yes and we also at some point get some speech from tom Payne about how this will be like a beacon on a hill moment for the space program and we've got so much other stuff to talk about in this episode we do there's kelly writing her essay yes and she asks the baldwins about like why did you adopt me well they so this. they talk about how they were like they talk about oh we saw operation baby lift which was like a thing that happened again in real life it was this evacuation effort of, of vietnamese children from vietnam during the fall of south vietnam and we saw that and we, we were like oh we you know we should adopt a kid but it's but um karen's like oh yeah you called me from for an edge like you called me from like it was like the green point or like the greenhorn or whatever and kelly's like wait that's the hotel that's like five minutes away and they're like yeah we were like separated then and you know shana just died and we were sad so but then this kind of brought us together and she's like oh so i'm your band-aid and she's like, and they're like no you're you're way more important than that and it's just it feels like this is like the fourth emotional breakthrough the baldwin family has had <laughs> as, as many episodes it's like all right guys it's like can we just have a scene where kelly's writing an essay just have it be like eh, what did you write your essay about dad and ed baldwin's just like the goofy dad it's like well i probably just wrote about why i wanted to go to annapolis yeah it's yeah. like we don't need another tear-inducing scene about marriage and the fragility of life and children and tenderness or whatever. It's like, ease up on the, the pedal there, fellas. And, and then it kicks off on like a very small subplot in the next couple episodes that it doesn't really have a whole lot to do with the rest of the show. Well, I don't know. She tracks down her dad and he's a moon man. <laughs> <laughs> Her dad is Gordo Stevens. Let's transition to Gordo Stevens. So Gordo meets a character that has been long anticipated, right, Mike? Yes, he travels to the mansion of Sam Cleveland. Sam Cleveland, of course, the mysterious wealthy businessman who is married to Tracy Stevens now. They uh, they, they share a glass of Thomas Jefferson's wine. Why? 
Well, to, to, to illustrate no. that Sam is rich. If, if, if the giant house was not, you know, illustration enough, and, like, the, the staff who works in it... Yeah. Um, they should have been, like... They should have gone even further to establish he's rich. It's like, you know, this bottle was owned by Winius, the man who invented <laughs> wine. <laughs> they say this wine was poured by Dionysus himself. The Greek god of wine. This is the wine the dinosaurs drank. <laughs> Bottled here and unopened until right now, Gordo. It's just like, it's just like a, it's like you have to open, it's like in the Flintstones, you have to open it like with a bird corkscrew. So yeah, anyway, and, and they're talking and he was like, yeah, so you know, I'm going to be on the moon with like my ex-wife and your current wife. And he's like, yeah, and he's like, and I'm going to get her back. And Sam's like, excuse me? And he's like, yeah, I'm going to want her back. And they have this kind of standoff conversation. He's like, well, I, he's like, look, man, if, if she takes you back, she takes you back. Like, I can't tell her what to do. And it, it kind of, it gives Gordo, I guess, an extra kind of motivation and motive to do this thing he was initially reluctant to do. Yeah, well, he lays out his motivations very clearly mm-hmm. for both Sam and the audience. And I, I, for one, I'm of, like, two minds. Because I like seeing a more confident Gordo. Mm-hmm. He spent a lot of the first half of the season hemming and hawing and, you know, trying to, you know, better himself in many ways. But on the other hand, it seems a bit weird to be like, yeah, I'm going to fly to the moon and I'm going to corner my ex-wife <laughs> and badger her into taking me back. Yes. Yeah. That's. Uh, you would also just think that's probably just generally a thing that, nasa would try to avoid but i guess the point is is that (laughs) uh there are there are the uh the people involved are kind of willing to cut corners to get their friends in these positions anyway so i think we've long passed the point of like nasa as it stands in the show right now is run by crazy people (laughs) (laughs) kind of yeah but they're so crazy all their plans might just work like if you think about it like ed baldwin now he, like, can't get through a scene with his family without, like, an emotional breakdown. Yeah. Gordo thinks he might be insane. Tracy is, like, an emotional fraud. Margot plays the piano. And Ellen is living a lie. <laughs> yeah, she is. Well, do, do we have anything else to talk about, Gordo, or should we, should we pivot back to Ellen? I just think it's very interesting that this is the point we are now introduced to Sam Cleveland. Yeah, it is kind of strange. Like, I don't, he has no scenes, I think, with Tracy. Unless it's over, like, the video phone this season. Yeah, that's a good point. I, I, I think you're right. But so it's, like, interesting to have this character that Tracy is supposedly in love with. I guess mm-hmm. they never really address if they're in love. They're do married. They? Well, I mean, they're married. But, like, the, like, does Tracy ever say, like, oh, Sam, I love Sam. But it's interesting that it's, like, the scene between Gordo and Sam. And they're both like, all right, game on then, good yes. man. <laughs> May the best man win. It read very, like, early 1900s sporting, in a way. Yeah, it, it is odd. His, his whole introduction is... Especially because they talk about him, it's like, ah, Sam Cleveland, like, it's, he's somebody you should know. You, you know? thought he was real. Yeah, I did. Turns out he isn't. All right, and then let's talk about Ellen and Larry and Pam, this ongoing indie movie. <laughs> so Ellen is dating Pam again. Pam, of course, is in a relationship, and she's like, go out again, because we have this connection, you and I. It's like, but if I'm going to take you back, Ellen, and break up with Elise, then you need to be open and honest. And then Ellen ultimately agrees, and then she has a conversation with Larry at their table. Yeah, a conversation is like, hey, so, you know, I'm seeing Pam. He's like, oh, that's great. And he's like, I remember back in the day, like, you know, 
her whole thing was she wanted she would only really like she would only stay together if you if you came out and she's like yeah well about that <laughs> and he's like oh and she's like i think it's time that we get a divorce and he's all like you want to destroy this fake marriage we we, we we've been creating together and it's like a little strange where she's like, I love the life we have together, even though it's like, you know, this very sham that's put up to, to protect both the reputations. And they talk about all that, how like, they're going get, to get a divorce. And that's kind of how they ended, basically. They, they, they agree to it at the very end. Um, yeah, Larry, Larry ultimately agrees because he loves Ellen. Yes. And I really buy their relationship. <laughs> yeah, I, I guess it's, I, it's the thing is I don't really like if they if they seemed like they were better friends, like then I would kind of buy the whole thing more. But again, I don't feel like they really established that well enough. You don't think they established Ellen and Larry? Well, I mean, it's like I feel like again, like I guess the chemistry is not necessarily there. Um, oh, I, I I buy them, but it's like it's a funny thing where it's like in this homosexual relationship, I like <laughs> Ellen and Larry <laughs> more than Ellen and Pam. But that's just me. Ellen's gonna get divorced and then boom, Mary Pam come out, run for president, <laughs> do all sorts of crazy kooky things. I noticed Mike isn't laughing when I said mm. run for president. Mm. Oh no. Mm. Well, we'll we'll get to that in a little bit. And then I think the only thing left to talk about is our ending where Danielle and uh, her Joe Bob Smith pilot assistant <laughs> friends decide to fly out to the soviet union where their welcome doesn't seem as warm no it is not they say where's our brass band and they don't have one and that's it it's dark it's nighttime there might as well be lightning and evil <laughs> organ music playing <laughs> and uh, yeah so we'll we'll follow more of what danny and uh I guess just Danny, actually, uh, is up to in the Soviet Union next week in the exciting next episode, which we'll cover in the next episode of our podcast. How can people let us know their thoughts about these exciting pair of episodes? You can email us at contact at com to let us know what you think about For All Mankind and the conversations we have about For All Mankind. You can find this podcast anywhere you find podcasts. Please like, rate, and subscribe it. Subscribe to it. Excuse me. And you can find me on Twitter at Emlevito and on Letterboxd at Ameramike. And you can find me on Twitter at, at the Lewis Ryan. I'm on Letterboxd as well. Please subscribe to this podcast and the other podcasts on the Post Rider Network. We enjoy what we do here at the Post Rider, and we can't do it without uh, listeners and contributions from said listeners like you. So please open your wallets and give generously. <laughs> In the meantime, we'll be back to cover the next two episodes so don't go anywhere refresh your podcast feed and look for the next episode so take care everybody bye bracket season and to celebrate the post rider is a brand new podcast they'll do for political junkies what the ncaa tournament does for sports fans that's right everyone it's called floor fight and each season we'll be creating a bracket that pits political figures and topics against each other until we end up with an ultimate winner it's like a contested convention if a contested convention was held between two guys in a google hangout with too much time on their hands 
For our first season, we seeded 72 losing presidential candidates for a tournament of the also-ran, so we can finally answer the question, who was the greatest president we never had? It's the perfect show for anyone who ever wondered what would happen if Dewey really did defeat Truman, or if Palm Beach County didn't use a butterfly belt in 2000. And the best part is you can check out the seeds and prepare for the planes now at thepostwriter.com slash floorfight. See every candidate who they'll match off against the plane in first rounds, and let us know on Twitter, at the Post Rider, who you think should win. And if those references to Dewey and Truman and Palm Beach County meant anything to you, then subscribe to Floor Fight. It's available everywhere you can find podcasts and, of course, on thepostwriter.com. Thank you.